0: 16th century armies were not always maybe intending to destroy the environment, whereas 19th and 20th century armies, they become more intentional in actually targeting the environment to deprive the opponent of any environmental resources by deploying scorched earth.
1: Imagine a world in which your life is turned upside down by war. Not just war, but total war. The very land on which you live is destroyed, and you're forced to flee, leaving everything behind. Beyond that, the very place you live is destroyed. Food is scarce, shelter is difficult to find, and fear pervades your life. Though total war is most associated with modern conflicts, its roots actually go back much further than you may have thought. Join us as we explore environmental warfare. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Emmanuel Krijke, though Dutch, has spent much of his career in the United States. He is a professor at Princeton University, and his research and teaching primarily focuses on how violence and forced migration can destroy human landscapes and force people to rebuild their lives in new places. He has written extensively about this topic, including, in 2021, the publication of his book, Scorched Earth, Environmental Warfare as a Crime Against Humanity and Nature and that was published by Princeton University Press. You can learn more about Kreike and his work by visiting history.princeton.edu slash people slash Emanuel Kreike. That's E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L-K-R-E-I-K-E. E-M-M-A-N-U-E-L K-R-E-I-K-E. Emanuel, thank you so much for joining. I've really been looking forward to the conversation. Thank you. As I was reading about your work, I, I encountered a great review of your book by Tatiana Schlossberg in the New York Times Book Review. And she wrote about scorched earth, quote, Krika offers a stark corrective and an implicit warning. Humanity is not distinct from nature, and assuming it is can have tragic outcomes. And that really struck me because I usually start these with a definition, and I'm going to ask you for a definition of sorts. But what struck me about your work is that we generally study history and focus on the human impacts. But while you don't really ignore humans by any stretch, you really focus on environmental warfare and, and the impacts of, of war on the environment. And so I'm curious, the term environmental warfare, what does
0: that mean to you? By using environmental warfare, I want to emphasize that the environment that people live in and depend on, and that they also shape, of course, is also often a, a target, an object of warfare. And its destruction, of course, has direct implications uh, for the people. Mostly people look, indeed, as you say, in the history and in the the present, at the direct impact on people, the targeting of people through massacring or displacement. And these are horrible crimes. But what we often forget is that destroying the environment or displacing people from the environment that they depend on has indirect impacts on people that can be as severe. As direct impacts, for instance, displacement or destruction of homes, water sources, food sources can uh, trigger famines, it can trigger disease, deadly epidemics, you know, cholera, plague. And these, the impacts of these sort of environmental factors caused by destruction in war or displacement of the people from their environment can be as destructive and as deadly as directly Targeting the people themselves. And you use
1: this term environside uh, quite a lot in the book. And we, we know genocide, and, and I think that's a widely familiar topic. But what is environside?
0: Well, genocide, again, th- th- this is related to, to your, your, your first question, of course, is that genocide is directly targeting, planned targeting of people. Ecoside, uh, although originally. Uh, when people and scientists protesting the use of Agent orange in, in, in the Vietnam War uh, coined the term. Initially, they also meant it to include violence and destruction of people and the environment. But over the years, it has changed its meaning. And now when you talk about ecocide, it's usually seen as war against nature and nature as pristine nature, so against forests or against mountains or you know, destruction of entire environments, right? The people are seen as sort of a separate category. So you see that in international law, if, you know, ecocide uh, and environmental crimes during war are a completely separate set of regulations and laws, completely separate from genocide. So with environment side, I'm trying to sort of create a bridge and alert users to the fact that ecocide and genocide are deeply connected. In fact, what I'm trying to sort of highlight is that the destruction of the environment, so ecocide, can result also in genocide. But in the legal term of genocide, that doesn't count because it's indirect. And in genocide, it has to be directly aimed at the people uh, with objectives objective of destroying the people rather than the environment. And so ecocide and genocide frequently come
1: together in this environside, this kind of amalgamation of the two ideas. Yeah, that's the idea. And when you have total war, is that essentially one and the same? Every time you have total war, you also have environside? Or, or can they not necessarily go together like that?
0: No, not necessarily. But what I do highlight in the book is that total war you know, is often seen as something linked to modernity, 19th, 20th century, industrial warfare, technology, weapons of mass destruction, machine guns, nuclear weapons. Uh, So it's it's usually linked to the modern period, to modern technology. But what I'm trying to highlight in this book, uh, by emphasizing environmental warfare, I'm showing with historical cases that war was not limited before the 19th and 20th century because it often included as targets the environment that people were dependent on by displacing them or by destroying this environment and and destroying the livelihoods of people and that is just as deadly so that constitutes if if you have a warfare where in an indirect way maybe people and their livelihoods become targets right so civilians become targets uh, livestock become targets, the crops, the environment itself becomes a target. Then you can't call this limited war. I think that's a mistake, right? Because in an indirect way, you affect people in many different, uh, at many different levels in many different ways. And again, it can be as destructive, right? Ultimately, I, I don't wanna play this down of course, but ultimately there is of course a difference of scale, but I'm not sure if there's a difference of intent Or in terms of the intensity of human suffering, if you have, for instance, the Incas or the Aztecs, as they were invaded by the Spanish conquistadors and their allies, that because of the warfare and the displacement and destruction, uh, you had smallpox, outbreaks of smallpox were facilitated because people had food, people were weakened. You had famine, and that caused enormous suffering and also enormous losses of human lives. So if you burn down a city, right? I mean, for the people in the town, I'm not sure if it would make a difference if they, if they see everybody they love burned because of a nuclear explosion, right? Like Hiroshima or because the city was completely burned down and plundered by say the Spanish conquistadors and their allies. There is of course a difference of scale, but I'm not sure if in, in the intent and the impact in terms of human suffering, there is such a big difference between the two.
1: I was really struck by this this core insight of Scorscheur. And it, I think it was said really well in one of the very first lines of the book, you were referring to World War I. You said, in fact, by 1914, total war had been central to the practice of war across the globe for at least four centuries. And that was like a slap to the face for me, at least, because I think when you read about or hear about Rome or Macedon or Greece and their conquests in the ancient world, you read terms like, oh, they, they salted the fields or they burnt the crops or things like that. But it sounds like it's kind of a small scale ancient history type thing. But this made me rethink how I think about ancient warfare too, and just kind of human warfare broadly, whether it's it's ancient or modern. And I wonder, was, was Total War, as you researched this book, does that appear as just a, a feature of just about all human conflict, this this environment side is
0: really not unique to modernity. Yeah, I don't think it's unique to modernity, but of course, all wars are not the same. You mentioned the classical period, for instance, right? Uh, I was reading a while ago the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar, and he prides himself on exterminating entire Germanic tribes including through the use of hunger and displacement and on purpose, uh, yeah, and through scorch, scorch Earth also. So yeah, I don't think it's new. It's not necessarily that all wars employ Scorch Earth, although many do, and it's actually interesting that many smaller wars also deploy Scorch Earth, and modern wars, of, of course, also. But I'm not, I'm not saying that everything is a variant side necessarily. But I do want to highlight that link between the two, that these are not completely separate kinds of warfare, and that there is a pattern in history of targeting the environment as well as people in warfare. Do you think
1: that the impacts of side of, of total war, does it strike you that the effects of it tend to fall more heavily on urban or rural populations? As you think about
0: environside, who's, who bears the brunt of that? That's a very good question. My book focuses more on the rural areas because most production, right? food and other means of livelihoods, they are found in the countryside. And that of course, if a city is cut off, that's a little bit better studied. So we have quite a lot of studies on sieges, sieges of cities, right? Uh, think of Stalingrad, Leningrad, blockades are also right. Think of what's happening now in Ukraine in negotiations about uh, the grain exports that not just impact Ukraine, but, but many places in the world. So this is quite critical. But what I felt was often not really clear in these descriptions of the war is actually that, that the, the rural areas suffer just as much of scorched earth as the urban areas. But of course, there's less sources about it, right? because most of the people who have given us reports and historical sources about the war, it's usually the urban elites, the rural peasants rarely write about. Although the interesting thing is, what was one of my main sources for the 16th, 17th, 18th century was actually it was uh, investigations by the tax departments, as it were, because they wanted to know why are people not able to to pay the taxes in the rural areas. So they did all these sort of surveys in the rural areas during the war and post-war to assess whether people would be granted tax exemptions because of the destruction of their fields and farms during the war. So there were sources about it, but they're less published and more hidden in the archives. Yeah, so my emphasis is more on the rural areas because they produce also for the cities. Food is stored in the cities, but it's not produced in the cities.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. There's this inextricable link between the rural areas producing food and the urban areas surviving off that production, and then the impact of the wars on rural areas to the urban areas and the record keeping centers. That's a, it's an interesting relationship between the two that you, you don't often think about in terms of warfare, I think. Do you think that the impacts have evolved over the last several hundred years as warfare has increasingly become mechanized or do you think like you were alluding to earlier with you know Hiroshima versus burning a city do you think that they may have become more exaggerated you know war is terrible when you have tanks rolling through but the impacts were largely similar to the people living in the areas that were affected by war
0: Yeah that is a very good question what puzzled me a little bit in the book, so I start in the sixteenth century, sixteenth century warfare, where armies basically lived off, off the land, like as they had been doing before in the Middle Ages. And Was this the Dutch revolt in the late sixteenth century? Yeah, the Dutch revolt. The Dutch revolt is part of the uh, Wars of Religion in Europe and the Thirty Years' War, right? The the, the mother of wars. Uh, but also, you know, the Spanish conquest of the, of the, uh, of the Americas is, is in the same period. It's the same sort of tradition. The same practices of war are used on either side of, of the Atlantic and also in Asia. So what was very striking to me is that in the 16th century, armies largely live off the land. They directly, indirectly, they tax the peasantry. Because they have the food. They have the resources.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong, back then too, it was much more of a hand-to-mouth agricultural environment. You
0: didn't have these tremendous surpluses like we do these days. Exactly. And then by the early 20th century, when I stopped with this, they're still doing environmental warfare. But in theory, these armies were not, because if you read sort of the, the changes of war in the late 19th century, early 20th century, is that wars and armies are professionalized. And they start using technology. They start developing a, right? It becomes modern war. It's not just armies are not fighters. The majority of people in and resources, actually modern wars, are actually the logistics. The combatants themselves are a relatively small percentage if you compare that to the 16th century, right? So they have this logistical apparatus in theory, but the warfare in terms of, uh, scorched Earth and targeting the environment. I found it striking as a story in that that remained largely the same. And there were two things that I, I was seeing. I'm now working on another, you know, on a, on a volume two for of site, taking it into the modern period because I want to know w- what's happening here, why, and of course, one of the one of the answers is that yes, they have a logistical apparatus, but as total war continues. These, this apparatus uh, collapses, right? You see that with the Germans in World War I, right? Because they, they, they get an economic boycott against them. So they start living off the land, Belgium and North France, they, they, they completely pillaged. You see the same again in World War II as the German war effort is no longer sustainable. They start also living off the land in especially Eastern Europe, but also plunder, of course, all kinds of resources in Western Europe. So, That's one, right? How long can you sustain in total war, not directly living off the land, pillaging the land? But they were reverting back to the 16th century methodology
1: in the 1900s.
0: Yeah, in effect. And another one seems to be that they seem counterintuitive, but that's what I'm trying to figure out now with 20th century war. It seems that they start more intentionally targeting the environment in order to destroy it, in order to win the war. So in that sense, you could maybe say that total war in the 20th century or modern total war is a little bit different because it's more intentional almost in the sense that they're more conscious about wanting to do this destruction. So in that sense, it's more total war. What's an example of the intentional targeting of
1: the environment? Yeah. Can you give us an example of what that intentional targeting of the
0: environment was? For instance, the Germans retreating on the eastern front, doing scorched earth. Well, and of course, the Russians do exactly the same, right? The Russians fear Napoleon. And also when the Germans in World War II advanced, they practiced scorched earth intentionally to deprive the opponent, Napoleon and subsequently Hitler, Hitler's army, of any resources so that they could, could not advance any further.
1: So there's an evolution I'm picking up on that in the 16th century, and and I should add, I think the, the impacts of both of these were largely similar, but in the 16th century warfare, armies are living off the land, thereby depriving it of resources. And as you get into more modern war, there's just an industrial capability of scourging the earth, so to speak, as armies move through that I think just didn't exist for 16th century armies on such an industrial scale. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, you could say that's fair. But I think it's, there's also a change in sort of mentality. Whereas maybe 16th century armies were not always maybe intending to destroy the environment, but it almost happened because they had to live off the land. And also they had less control over the soldiers themselves, would pillage and plunder and scorch by themselves. Whereas 19th and 20th century armies, they're supposed to be, right? This is, a th- again, this is the theory, right? They're supposed to be more disciplined, more, more controlled from the top down. But yet at the same time, they become more intentional in actually targeting the environment to deprive the opponent of any resources, any environmental resources, by deploying scorched earth. Right? So in modern warfare, so in, in the Soviet warfare, warfare, right, you have this, this uh, famous ascribed to Mao Zedong saying, well, the guerrilla should be like fish in the ocean. And the ocean that sustains the fish, the environment that sustains the fish, that's the, the rural population that shelters, provides food for. That was the strategy in China in, in the guerrilla war. But then, of course, encountering the sea war, what do you do? You drain the sea. But look at what, what the Americans did with uh, Agent Orange and Napalm. Vietnam, right? They tried to destroy the forest. And actually, the French tried the same in Algeria. They tried to destroy the forest. So, directly trying to get the environment that, in this case, sheltered the Viet Cong and the FLM. You
1: touch on a number of particular conflicts as you trace total war on Environside through the, through the centuries. You touched on the Dutch Revolt in the 16th century, probably most familiar to us here in North America are both the the conquistadors down in South America and Central America, but then also the North American conflict with the indigenous peoples here. And I'm curious, switching gears and looking at the conquistadors and and the North American, Native American conquests, did any major commonalities emerge between those two pieces of
0: history when it comes to total war and environside? Yeah, I I think there are. There are striking similarities to an extent that I'm suggesting that they were sort of copycatting from one another, right? Using the same kind of tactics. So the, the Spanish, they first went for the big empire, Aztecs, the Incas, and they went straight to the heart of these empires. But it became, I think, more difficult for co- any conquistadors to fairly easily or in a very direct way, conquer other societies that were less centralized in terms of having a capital, and if you take the capital, then the whole empire sort of collapses, right? Which is a story about the Incas and the Aztecs. The low-hanging fruit, so to speak, was, was
1: fairly quick, and then, then
0: it's the high-hanging fruit. Well, relatively, right? Because now they're coming out, and actually the Aztecs continue to resist for you know, more than a century after that, or maybe even longer, by retreating deeper into, into the Amazon forest. But yes, the smaller and sometimes more mobile societies were often much more difficult to sort of conquer in a definite way because they could move away. So I was surprised looking at mainly the secondary literature on the conquest in the Americas. I was surprised about the parallels in terms of how the Spanish, the French, the Dutch, the English... Try to deal with these smaller societies by actually directly using Scorts Earth. The Dutch conquest of New York and the larger area, the wars they fought there were, were very genocidal in terms of the impact, but they fought mainly with Scorts Earth to really directly try to push the Native Americans in the areas they were fighting in, to push them away, really using famine and destruction of their homes. So directly Scorts Earth to try to push them out of those areas to do what we would now call sort of forced removals or uh, ethnic cleansing by actually going for the resources they depended on, for the environmental resources, their homes, uh, sources of water, fields. And the settlers also, including Dutch settlers, they settled often on the environmental infrastructure that the American Indians, and Native Americans had created. And that's how they often survived, right? I think Thanksgiving is sort of a very weird, symbolic representation of that, right? Because Thanksgiving highlights the settlers survive. That's right. It it highlights environmental infrastructure, the turkeys and the cornucopia and everything. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's fascinating. Emmanuel, you make the point that the late 1800s were really the first time during which armies had their own logistical networks that supported them. Prior to that, were the armies just foraging and, and living off the land and how did that development change the
0: nature of the environ side stemming from war? Now, that's a good question. So there is this conventional idea that the 18th century actually saw a change in warfare. And that actually in the, in the 18th century war became more limited and that it became more a sort of chess game between armies. Did this coincide with some professionalization of armies? Yeah, the, the professionalization, uh, technology, you know, scientific, rationalizing. Well, yeah, it's, it's a bit weird to me, rationalizing army of war. I find that a little bit of contradiction in terms, but it's a little bit of a paradox. Yeah. Yeah, for the lack of a better word. But as I was delving into sort of the archives of war, of, of the fighting itself, focusing on the practices of war, indeed, 18th century armies had long supply columns of carts and wagons with drivers and horses and oxen. But, you know, as you dig a little bit deeper, it turned out that the majority of these carts and drivers and horses and oxen were actually forced to participate. There were actually peasants who were taken away often from the harvest or commercial drivers who normally would have been transporting food, say, from the the after-the-harvest to the cities, right, to be sold. And they were uh, forced to carry the food or even arms and ammunition also often. So what it did is, it was actually, and also where did the food come from, right? So 18th century armies, they talk sometimes of the war of magazines, of supply, right? Armies would move from magazine to magazine, and that's where, they had food and other supplies, but the food there also usually came not from overseas ships. It came from the surrounding countryside where peasants had, were forced to deliver this food to these cities, to these magazines. And if they didn't, the armies often used quartz earth. There were special units, actually, that would, you've heard of dragoons, right? And being dragoons. The dragoons were uh, an infamous type of soldiers that if a community, if say a, a peasant village wasn't deliver its, didn't deliver its quota of uh, food, grain or straw or other supplies, the commander would send the dragoons and they would take it. They would just pillage and they would often, as an example, burn down the village to terrorize the other Villages to cooperate, and the other farmers to cooperate. So that's what you. So the 18th century was not a big transition, and of course, as we know, the revolutionary armies of Nepal and the Napoleonic armies also lived off the land. So the transition it, it was not a limited war in the in the in the 18th century because armies, as you said, in effect, in practice, they lived off the land. That's interesting. There's this kind of fulcrum
1: point between living on the land and then the modern military logistical apparatus where you have this kind of forced conscription of the logistical apparatus there in the middle in the 1700s. And then it turns a little bit later into the true modern logistical apparatus. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. So in my later chapters, in the the late 19th century, so for instance, in the chapter on the Aceh War. And you see the same in the in the 1860s and 1870s in the wars in, uh, of the United States against the Western Indians, right? The Plains Indians. The soldiers usually were given rations, right? Food, and for the, Adje, the, the Dutch soldiers in Atya, they got food all the they brought all the way from the Netherlands and from other places in Indonesia. But in addition, if you read these accounts very carefully, you realize. That they also kept, that they would shoot buffaloes and other uh, game. And they had also units doing this. But that, that they also lived off the land. So there's this very strange thing. At first, I didn't see this. When the Dutch soldiers in Aceh were pulled back from the rural areas and concentrated in the towns, And it turns out they, that they couldn't steal any fresh food from the peasants anymore. And they got, it was not scurvy, but they were exposed to all kinds of, they were malnutritioned because they would only get dried fish, you know, salted fish, and they couldn't steal fresh foods anymore, fruits from the peasants. And disease was very, very, uh, disease levels were very high in in the Dutch army, right? Showing that even these modern sort of second half 19th century armies, they still partly lived off the land. It, didn't, it wasn't a very uh, direct transition, right? And of course, as, as, right, as, as we discussed very briefly before, if during the war, right, as happened, right, say with the Napoleonic armies and the German armies in World War I and World War II, when that logistical apparatus collapses because of a blockade, the Allied blockade of uh, Germany in World War I is a good example, uh, they ran out of food, and they started just living directly off the land in the areas they occupied again. So I have a slightly different focus on these wars is because I tried to focus, by using this term site. I tried to focus on sort of the productive, the livelihood, the resources in the rural areas, and show how they remained very important logistically for these armies in terms of the practices of war, right? There's of course the theories of war, how wars should be fought ideally. But then there's also what is happening on the ground. What are the circumstances in which these armies try to, try to literally survive, right? If their infrastructure, infrastructure, they rely on the urban and the, and the, and the road infrastructure, if that starts collapsing. Then they revert back again to very directly living off whatever is in the, in the local rural environment because that's what the production is, right? The, the food runs out first in the cities because there's no new f- food produced. So you have to live off the land. You have to go spread out in the rural areas.
1: This urban and rural divide, and, and as you have alluded to many times, the, the urban consumption, the rural production, of food, but then also the urban production of records, and, and there's oftentimes a louder voice in the urban areas versus the rural areas. But one of the things I thought was fascinating about Scorched Earth was that you spent a lot of time reviewing oral histories from people in Southern Africa about their experience following World War I, and my presumption is this was almost entirely rural people, people that had oral an oral history tradition. And I'm curious, Emmanuel. What anecdotes stuck out to you from your research into these oral histories in in Southern Africa and their post war experience?
0: They actually focused in their stories, in their memories. They focused actually on the environmental impact of war, directly because the destruction, the plundering, but also their displacement from their homes. But of course. At your home, in a, a rural home, is placed there for a certain reason, right? First, if you're in an area with a little bit of water, your rural home or your village or your home is going to be near a water source. And of course, if you live in this area, that's where you make your fields, that's where you put your fruit trees and other resources. Right. So if you moved from there or it's destroyed, right? And this is what people in these interviews emphasized because they had experienced that themselves as children, they heard stories from their parents about the impact of colonial conquest in that area. And that really inspired me, hey, wait a minute, if this is happening here, is this unique? right? And that's when I started looking in other conflicts for sources, for information about, okay, wh- what is happening here in these rural areas? And the weird thing is, I'm not so into Tax records. I'm a a social environmental historian first. I'm not less interested in sort of the finances. I I don't think many people are into tax records. (laughs) No, no. But the interesting thing is, I found the information, I found the sort of equivalent of these stories about loss and displacement and about their environments being destroyed or lost to them with all the subsequent disease, uh, trauma. Uh, famine, death right I found this in what you normally would call text records because right this is and this relates directly to what you say how do you find right the the, the sources of history are concentrated the urban elites write those stories, and that 's where documents survive right the, the, the records are kept in the cities but since the food and other, and other resources for the cities, they come from the rural areas. So that's where wars, right? However horrible they are, they open a sort of window into the past and almost into a sort of the practices, the, the experiences of war by the rural people that are normally not part of this history. But what happens is, since the urban elites don't get their food anymore, they send people into the rural areas to investigate what's happening there, right? Are they selling it to somebody else? So that's where the sources come from uh, for the impact of environment side, of environmental warfare in the 16th to 19th century wars. It is almost a sort of oral history. It is peasants that are being investigated by often representatives of the rural elite saying, where's the food? Where are the taxes? And that's where you get very detailed descriptions of an oral history, in fact, of rural peasants, men and women, try to explain why they can't pay their taxes, why they can't supply food to the urban elites, who are also often the owners of the land, of course. That's why there's a link between tax and food. And of course, the tax is paid in food often, directly or indirectly. So these oral histories of people in in Namibia and Angola, right, who talked about these wars during their childhood and the impact on them in terms of, uh, you know, war, violence, displacement, disease, death, these really kind of heartbreaking and intense stories, they they sort of pointed me, okay, where where can I find these same kind of stories about the how people experience the practices of war, how can I find these back in other conflicts? I can imagine if you live in a rural
1: area, you, you feel nature and human impacts to nature much more keenly than we probably do living in an urban area. And I, I wonder what emotions kind of bubbled up to the surface as you read these oral histories. Were there, were there common feelings that these folks felt as they were recounting
0: or experiencing these travesties, yes, the Namibian and the Angolan histories. I did in the early history in early nineties. I did these oral histories myself. Uh, some of these people were very old, but their emotions were still very, very strong. So I remember talking to this one uh, lady, and she was she was saying that she and a friend of hers were the only Small children who survived the famine that resulted from the displacement and the environmental warfare in their village. Right? They were the only two of their generation who actually survived. There were no other children. All their brothers and sisters, and their cousins, and the neighbors' children, they all died. But you know, what very much impressed me is that this was incredible human suffering. And it's easy just then to just see them only as victims. But of course, this is sort of a self-selection, right? Because the people who I could talk to, you know, uh, 40, 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80 years later, they were the survivors. So it was very interesting for me as a sort of historian of, of, of the colonial era to see how these interviewees We're talking about their suffering and the suffering of their family and friends in the past and their neighbors. But at the same time, the victimization was there, but at the same time, they were, right. They were telling stories about survival, right. And of rebuilding, remaking their villages. And this also made me very, I I found that especially striking. Because it's it's a big deal still in the United States, right? The American Indians is very much a parallel in terms of many of these peasant stories that were sort of hidden and lost, and you can't find them. The same is, of course, true with Native Americans. Their stories were largely forgotten; they were written out of history. And now, of course, there's a big movement to recapture these stories and not just present uh, Native Americans, Indigenous Americans, as victims but also celebrate and highlight and and narrate how they survived because they haven't disappeared they have survived uh, their stories have survived right so it, it these are s- stories of great tragedy and suffering but at the same time they're also stories of survival and of of rebuilding rebuilding communities rebuilding workable environments that I'm very struck by, very impressed by, that, that in these stories, despite these victimization, you don't get a victims-only narrative. You also get a, a, a narrative inserted in there that they're agents of history, that they're in control of history, that they're making history, right? which, which I find very powerful as a, 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 as a sort of narrative.
1: Right. Not just the victim narrative, also the, the survivor and perhaps the, the thriver narrative. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who, who reads your work and says, okay, I get it, environment side that's, that's really bad, but when you rank the ill effects of war, far and away the worst thing is the human suffering, and, and I think of environmental suffering as a very distant second or third or fourth or fifth. What would you say to that person who criticizes this focus on the environment
0: as opposed to people? Well, it's a little bit like, like this. You can't separate us as a species or as individuals from our environment. We shape the environment, but we're also shaped by the environment. So whatever we do with the environment, it always comes back on us. We treat it fine, then you're right. But if we destroy our environment, ultimately we destroy ourselves. I think this is a this is an important question that you raise, right? Because this was of course a big question still with environmentalism and uh, conservation, especially conservation and environmentalism in the non-Western world, which for a long time was us in the West telling people in the non-West, hey, you have to save your elephants. You have to shoot them if they eat your crops. No, 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 no. You have to preserve them for the future. So we were a little bit forgetting, you know. So we we were sometimes giving the impression that the life of an elephant was far more important to us in the West than the life of a, right, of a man or a woman or a child in Africa, in Tanzania, in these, in these same villages. But that's not what my aim is, right? I'm, I'm, my aim is to sort of highlight that, hey, environment, we are part of the environment. The environment is part of us. You can't separate these two, because if you separate them and you destroy the one, thinking you do it to make humanity better, this is the typical modernization and developmentalism of the late 20th century, right? We thought, okay, the environment is suffering, but right, if we can, by using and domesticating and using and sometimes abusing the environment, we can make the future of humanity better, then that's worth it. right? But of course, in the early 21st century, we've, we started to realize, oh, wait a minute, these things are intimately connected. If we mess up our environment, right, there's going to be climate change. It's going to be hotter. And I must say, Paris is much hotter than I remember it when I was a kid. Then, we are affecting ourselves. So you, you can't separate these. You can't separate. We are as much a product of our v- environment as the environment is, a, it, it is shaped by us and is a product of us. So that is my whole point, that the two can't be separated from one another. And we come, of course, from the position that we think the environment is secondary to us and apart from us. It's an interesting echo
1: of a consistent theme that I've noticed that many of these conversations I've had in the course of recording these podcasts, which is so much of what we today think of as normal is indexed on a very short historical time period, really starting in the 1900s, I think, where that's when it strikes me that humans really started thinking of ourselves as distinct from nature. And, and before that, you were very much in nature, but it wasn't until really the bulk of the population was living in cities that you could consider yourself kind of apart from nature, and we don't really encounter nature all that often. We have a nice green grass yard, but it's not like we live in nature. It's not like we rely on it, and I think it's easy to forget that that experience of, of humans in nature was for most of human history the norm, not the exception. But right. I wonder, Emmanuel, and I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. My my final question, which I, I love asking all my guests, is What lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of environmental warfare and total war and side? What lesson or lessons can be applied to today's world?
0: I think the main lesson is, I think that we have to, since we are so connected with our environments, right? And the product of our environments, we have to respect it. Stop just managing the environment, right? Domesticating the environment, like which was the attitude in the last Right, Post-World War II, we, saw we had to domesticate it, we had to change it, we had to make it subservient to us in order for it to function. And that relates to what you're saying, because I think we have seen an enormous, if you look at sort of the mentality, and our perception of nature and our place in it, as you say, that has, in the last 20 years, has, I think, radically changed. Right? Whereas by the late 19th century, or late 20th century, technology was the answer basically we were transforming nature into technology to something we could completely mechanize as it were but we're now completely right at least our talk is to do that completely different we want to now live in and by nature as much as possible right we're talking about recycling right which, which of course that would be very difficult to sell in the 1970s because it costs money. Now we know we have to do it because there is limits to nature. I think it's not just a technical solution. It's also a mentality. We have to be aware that, you know, we, we have to, as you said, we have to realize we're part and parcel of nature. We don't stand beyond nature and we don't have to transform everything that is nature into culture and something mechanical or something technological or something in concrete and of course we're also aware that what we thought was culture right our cities that they were permanent and indestructible right but we see so many social and also technological cracks in that cultural edifice in the urban societies that we have to Address, make them more livable, try to create more, right? This is just an example. I'm in Paris now where there is a mayor at this moment who wants to really change the environment. So they do recycling as in many other places, right? They want to make the city more green, lower temperatures, right? By creating more green and less asphalt and less concrete gardens on rooftops, solar energy, wind energy all these ways to live more with the environment rather than subjugating and domesticating environment. We have long had this sort of very violent relationship with the environment, especially in the 19th and 20th century. I think it goes back further, deeper into history, right? That that we see ourselves at war with nature. And we have to win. And it's sort of a total war. So it's us or nature. But I think we've, we've started to realize that in, we, we're fighting ourselves. We're destroying our own environment. It's not us or nature.
1: It's actually us and nature, two sides of the same coin. Exactly. Well, Emmanuel Kraikin, thank you so much for everyone listening. Scorched Earth is available on Amazon and wherever you can find books for sale. To learn more about uh, Professor Kraikin and his writing, visit history.princeton.edu slash people. Emmanuel Emmanuel, thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you very much, Alex. It was my pleasure. This has been a production of Riches and Power. Hosted by Alex Dubé. Edited by
1: Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC.